But as an adult, this was something I learned in therapy as well. I could actually rewrite my narrative. I could actually say that this whole chapter ending is a new opportunity to be honest about who I am and, and what I need and how I need to be and go through life and to actually rethink how, how will I make decisions differently based on them. Hi, everyone. Today, we're speaking to Crystal Cha. Crystal is the Marketing Manager for Content and Services at the Asia School of Business, a business school in collaboration with Malaysia Central Bank and MIT Sloan. She is also a full-stack marketeer with over a decade of experience in traditional and digital marketing in local and international startups as well as public listed companies. Crystal is passionate about the power of words, not only in crafting compelling brand stories, but in shaping our personal narratives and taking charge of our future. In this interview, Crystal takes us through her very personal journey of how she found acceptance after falling apart and going through some stressful and life-changing events. We trust you're going to find so many pearls of wisdom in this honest and vulnerable conversation. Hi. This is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Crystal, I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Explore This podcast to share about your very personal journey. Personally, Crystal and I, for some of you who don't know, we've been friends since we were teenagers, back in our youthful younger days, I like to say. And I've journeyed with you through so much of what you've gone through in life. So yeah, we're really happy to have this opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here chatting with you, Sarah. Janice as well. And I think it's uh, really cool. We have quite a bit in common having done an MBA together. And for Sarah, we go way back, even even longer back. And I always tell people when um, introducing you that um, Sarah has been pal, uh, my, my cell group member, my intern, and then she recommended me to my previous job. And then she's also been my bridesmaid, but also divorce lawyer as well. <laughs> so that's where a lot of our friendship paths cross for Crystal and I. Yeah, lots of history. Lots to unpack there, ladies. (laughs) So I'm super excited to kickstart our conversation. But before we dive further in, Crystal, can you give our listeners a snapshot about your very colorful life journey so far so that they can get a sense of who you are? Yeah, I think describing my friendship with Sarah in a nutshell kind of gives you a preview to it already. But yeah, I think a quick introduction to myself. Growing up, I was, you know, that star student I was all about the getting the stars and getting the stickers and you know being praised I was yeah very good girl typical good girl you know like straight A student um, eldest child responsible all that I already had a plan for my life in uh, my early teens that I would graduate from high school go to college uh, get a scholarship go to university, do a master's. And, you know, up till my 20s, everything was going according to plan. I had finished high school, finished college, actually got to go abroad to university and then had a good job and and worked for a couple of years. And then I was about to, to start my MBA. So up till that point, it seemed like, you know, everything was going really well. But that point where I seemed to be on the outside the most successful or or seemed to be having it all. Oh, and to top it off, even before I started my MBA, I I just got married as well. So it seemed like, you know, I had everything studies-wise, work-wise, personal life, like all the boxes were tick, 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 tick. But 
at that point of my life when everything seemed to be at its peak, I was also going through like the darkest seasons of my life where, you know, the, I guess we'll unpack that more later. But it was one of the most difficult times of my life, which led to me getting a divorce and just rediscovering myself in the middle of all that as well. So that's the nutshell timeline introduction. <laughs> It's never easy just summarizing it into that few sentences because there's just so much behind the scenes that went on, right? But Chris, I know you as somebody who always strives to live your best life in the most, I would say, authentic way possible. And, you know, through our years of friendship and our conversations, you always told me that your life is somewhat an open book. You write very regularly about life, personal growth, relationships, as well as career on your personal blog. And in one of your most widely read articles, Life, Dating, and Growth on the Other Side of Divorce, you share about your very personal journey of navigating that divorce and what you've learned from it. Can you share with us a little bit about what was the catalyst behind writing this article? Yeah, so a year before writing that article, I actually wrote another article called Why My Divorce Was the Best Thing to Happen to Me. So I got a lot of a lot of reads, partly because of the very clickbaity title, I think. But also another big part was that there was this whole group of people in my social life that had just never heard from me since I got divorced. And it actually took me a year to say anything about my divorce or even write about it and put it out there. Only a handful of, I would say, like maybe five or less, less than seven friends really... Had, had talked to me about it and I actually had heart-to-heart -heart conversations with. But I took that whole year to process, to grieve, to figure out what went wrong, figure out what I could have done differently. And I just wanted to make sure that I processed it properly before I, I said anything about it. Because there was, of course, a lot of speculation, a lot of questions. And, and I just felt like, yeah, you know, a divorce is painful enough. I don't want to add to the pain for myself or anyone else by just finger pointing or like saying things before I was ready. And um, when I wrote that first piece, it was very much a reflective piece about what I had learned about myself and things I could have done better and very much a piece about growth. And I was really surprised because so many people read that article. I think that made me decide that okay, maybe I should write a second one now that it's been another year because it seems to be something that people resonate with even though you know not everyone has gone through a divorce but maybe something about having your life implode or having your life fall apart or feeling like you've lost something really big in life, maybe that's something that resonates. You know, when you talk about a lot of people resonating with it even though they haven't been through a divorce, I would say I am one of that reader because I did read your article and I felt like, I was so moved by the words and how you articulated the sense of loss and the sense of grief that you felt after that very, very painful life event. And I think this is a timely moment for us to talk about trauma, stress and grief, all these emotions that come from a highly strenuous and difficult life events, particularly, you know, going through a global pandemic right now. And events such as death of a loved one, illnesses, COVID, or even a loss of job relationship. And in your case, it was a very painful life event, which was the divorce. We thank you so much for being willing and open to share about your story. And we'd just like to hear from you. What are some personal discoveries that you have learned through your journey of finding yourself after having fallen apart? 
Yeah, I think you made such a great point, Janice, that it's a really difficult time for a lot of people. I think the world is collectively grieving in many ways. You know, for some, it's as extreme as having lost a family member. And for others, it's really having lost their whole summer plans or having lost a big trip they were looking forward to. And the thing I learned about grief and trauma is that everyone processes differently. What I didn't realize for a lot of my life is that growing up, I was a very highly sensitive kid. So I was that emo kid, as people would call. I was like this chicken little, the sky is always falling. And then growing up in a religious community, I was always anxious. I was always worried. I was afraid. Like I, It would stress me out. I would have nightmares about the end of the world coming or of my friends going to hell. And like when my parents were upset or when my parents were tight on money, I would get anxious about all these things. I was worried about my parents' finances from the time I was eight years old. That kind of tells you like what kind of personality I had as a kid. But of course, back then, I didn't know anything about personalities, right? I didn't know what it meant to be highly sensitive. And neither did people around me. So they said things like, I'm overreacting, I'm just being dramatic, I'm just being difficult. And so all these labels became part of my identity. And I said to myself, I have to hide this side of me. I have to be strong, I have to be responsible. So coming back to my point about how people process trauma differently, I think it can come in a lot of shapes and forms. Sometimes I think people diminish their painful experiences because they say, oh, it's not like I went through a war or it's not like I got raped. But even if you're sexually harassed, the kind of psychological impact that can have on you, who's to say like there's, there's not a skill, right, that one is worse than another. How we process, whether or not we have the tools to process, whether or not we have the self-awareness to process or the community to support us as we process. I feel like even little things like parents that are constantly arguing, an unstable family environment at home, or even seeing your loved ones going through an addiction or a mental illness, all of that can be a very traumatizing experience. And I think as a child, a lot of painful events happen and they just kind of stuck there. And my way of coping, because I didn't know better, was just to suppress it by overachieving and having things in control. It seems to us, Chris, that what you're talking about refers a lot to childhood experiences and maybe that realization that we never knew those childhood experiences could accumulate to catch up with us. And now that we're all adults and more reflective, more self-aware, what was that journey of realizing how much of that childhood could catch up to you the way it did? Oh gosh, that has to go back all the way to how my divorce got triggered. So I think being a child and a teenager who learned to perform in order to have things be stable and secure because I was so afraid of things falling apart, I think that just led me to living my life in a way where I checked the boxes, you know? So, okay, get good grades, get A's, then you'll get a scholarship. Okay, keep dating, and then you meet someone who will eventually propose to you, and then you get married. Very like, okay... I have this certain plan for my life and I need to check it off. So I did that. Although like, you know, it's funny, Sarah, you say that I come across as very authentic. People have always told me that as well. But like, there was a period of my life where I think I started to have like a split life. I started to hide the insecurities or the fears, the things I didn't process from childhood. It was just easier to project. The, the nice parts right it's easy for everyone I think so I did things and you know on the outside it seemed like you know things were going well but I was 
I was not really dealing with my triggers. I was not really de- dealing with things that stressed me out because to be high performing at work and to also be married to someone who is uh, very extroverted, who is very visible in the social scene and has a big social network, I was pushing myself. I was sleeping four to five hours a night. I was trying to juggle a freelance career and trying to figure out my full-time career. I was trying to study and aim for a master's degree. So I was just really burnt out. And then I feel like I just rushed into the marriage because I, I, I was not fully myself. I was just on autopilot at that, by that point. I was like, just, okay, these are all the things I need to do in my life. And I'm so tired that I'm emotionally not present to make the right decisions for myself. So it's just like, okay, how, how bad can it be, right? It's the next thing you got to do in life. But then a wake-up call came when a really close colleague of mine passed away suddenly from dengue. You know, people usually say the incubation period for dengue is like more than a week. So she's admitted to the hospital, but she's still okay. She's still stable. And then four days later, she just passes away. So that was like a big wake-up call for me to think, is this the life I want to live? I was coming back home from work and like I was so tired because I was just overwhelmed and I would just sit in the car and stare out the window and not want to go in the house and see my ex-husband. And just It just felt like my life was just one meeting after another, just one big event after another. And, and so many things were like clamoring for my attention. So when that colleague of mine passed away, it actually made me pause. It made me rethink a lot of things. And you would think that's when my turning point would be that, okay, I start to like have a wake up call and like live life for the better. But no, that's, that's not what happened. Instead, I felt a sense of I'm missing out on life. You know, this is not the life I want to live. If, if this is the meaning of life, when it looks like you have everything on the outside, it got to a point where I felt like, I'm better off dead, you know, because my life is so unsatisfying. People think I have it all because I'm married, have a good career, getting a master's. But my life is so shit. Um, I, I don't like who I am. I don't like this person I've become. And I was just numb and burnt out and tired. I was looking for something to make me feel alive again. Instead of seeking help, which I should have done, what I did at that point was I, I turned to a coping mechanism that I've always had since, I think, teenage years. I just developed it as a way to cope. And it, that was like being very codependent in my relationships. So I'm using a lot of terms here that I know not everyone might, might be aware of. So codependency is basically an unhealthy focus on other people's needs and other people's problems and trying to run away from your own problems by meeting other people's needs and solving other people's problems. A lot of people are actually in codependent relationships because you're always trying to fix your partner. You're always trying to figure things out for them. When they're upset, it completely ruins your day. Your sense of identity, self-worth, and your emotional stability is based completely on somebody else. So that was what I did. Instead of dealing with my own issues, I you know, started um, finding so many things that were was wrong with, with my marriage. And then at the same time, there was an old flame from a past relationship that I had that was also going through difficulties in his life at that time. So we initially started reconnecting just to confide in each other. But then that, that became a whole thing, a whole full-blown affair. And really what I was doing in hindsight was just escaping, you know, trying to escape from my problems and just going from one relationship I was not ready for into 
another unhealthy, emotionally attached relationship. And for a while, in between that whole messy period of my life, there were moments I, I felt alive, right? But it's the kind of aliveness you feel because you're doing something risky. You know, like how some people just to feel something, you know, they go into drugs or they make really poor decisions and, and, and they exhibit very risky behavior just to try to feel something. So that was where I was. And after a few months of that, I just felt like, Crystal, what are you doing with your life? And that was a point that I, I really sat down with my ex-husband and we decided to get a separation. Uh, because I said, this is just not working for me. I, I need to figure things out on my own. So that triggered my search to actually get help. And that's when I actually started to look for a professional counsellor or, or a professional therapist to actually help me. And the funny thing was, like, initially, it was going to be like marriage counselling. So we were going to go together as a couple to see if our marriage could be saved. Along the way, as we both were talking, our counsellor said that he actually rather see us separately because he said that we both have very deep-seated issues that stem back from childhood and even before the marriage that we need to deal with if we're ever going to have any chance to deal with our present issue. On that note, you know, it, it sounded like as you were going through this whole very tumultuous journey, you identified that you had codependent um, tendencies and that you were actually projecting a lot of unresolved issues into the relationship itself. But was that something that you actually identified along the way? And even before going to see a therapist, did you already identify all of these um, situations? And in if so, how were you able to identify? Was it because people around you could see it and they actually called you out for it? Or was this fully intrinsic? In, in what way did your support system play a role? That's such a great question. I would say my support system at that point was, was non-existent, right? Because everyone that was close to me, they only saw the side of me that I chose to show them. Everyone I met, you know, in my teenage years or my adult years, they saw this successful side of me. It just felt like I don't even want to go back to that messy childhood side of me but tell them all my problems like who wants to do that right because people already see you as you are and you're doing well in life and I kind of knew I kind of knew that my ways of coping were unhealthy but I felt like it was manageable in my case it was a lot more serious because it, it, it was relationships and it involved other people's lives as well mm. So it tied to that as well because I found so much of my validation from codependent relationships. A big part of uh, that was physical as well, so sex. And uh, when I first started seeing my therapist one-on-one, -on -one, he asked me to take this quiz. because like all of your relationships seem to have a physical component to them. I want you to take this quiz that says, are you addicted to sex? And I was like, that's ridiculous. I'm not addicted to sex, right? <laughs> but really, like, the questions were like, do you need to be with someone to feel loved? How, how do you cope when you're stressed? When you're at, at moments where you, you're stressed out, you're overwhelmed, where, where do you turn to? And um, I realized, like, what I thought was really normal, like, you know, a lot of people harmlessly watch porn or masturbate. That's like I'm like, you know, that's normal. That's healthy. That's healthy sex positive behavior. That's how I framed it to myself. But I realized that I was actually doing it to numb myself. Mm. Sometimes just even to fall asleep at night. I mean, some people, and it might seem so embarrassing to admit this, but I know people who are embarrassed to admit that they need a bottle of wine to fall asleep at night. So I feel like there's not one addiction that's worse than another. I feel that the reason I'm, 
so open to talking about these kind of things is because I think it's time to normalize the fact that trauma happens to us Mm -hmm. and to normalize the fact that without the right coping mechanisms and tools, we turn to unhealthy behaviors and addictions. And a lot of times it's so easy for us to rationalize that our addictions are normal until my counselor pointed it out to me that he says, you're using this as a coping tool. Mm-hmm. And after a few sessions of arguing with him, I was like, okay, fine, maybe you're right. You've just taken us through so many layers of unpeeling and there's just so much to to dig deeper into. But for you, it was obviously such a deeply rooted process of healing, of unraveling, of reflecting and dealing with so many unresolved issues through this whole journey in search for yourself. And what that has taught you about yourself and more importantly, the foundation on which you built your life upon. So even as you went through that entire process of learning all these things about yourself that you like, didn't like, and going through that really challenging divorce, did you go through a what good can come out of this moment? Yeah, so for... I think the first few months of going to therapy, each session was maybe two to three hours long. I would spend half of it crying because I really felt like my life was ending. But at the same time, I didn't mind my life ending because my life was so shit up to that point. I was like, if this is my life, it's a total lie because what everybody thinks I am is just not real. Outside, they think I'm happy, but inside, I'm just miserable to the point that I'm having an affair, doing shitty things, doing things that make me feel like a terrible person. And apparently, I have all these um, tendencies that my counselor has just pointed out to me as well. So I, I would say my whole identity fell apart completely. In one of those articles that I wrote, I, I describe it as life before divorce and after divorce. But really, I, I should have termed it before therapy and after therapy. Mm-hmm. Because like in that process of unpeeling all the unhealthy coping mechanisms that I had had, I just realized like I came to a point where identity-wise, I was like, well, then who am I? And, and then the truth of the matter is that I realized that, okay, I am this person. I'm very emotional, very melancholic. I'm a highly sensitive person. And it is these things that allowed me to be successful at my job. You know, it's these things, of be- these traits of being very highly sensitive and being very tuned into people's emotions that allowed me to navigate workplace conflict, that allowed me to have a very high standard of excellence that got me promotion after promotion. But it's these things that also made me very embarrassed to let people see who I am. Because, you know, when you're a kid, especially when you're a kid, if you're sensitive, you're always the one that gets teased, right? And bullied, like, oh, oversensitive, overreacting. My brothers would tease me. My parents would scold me for it. And it was just something really embarrassing to admit to friends that you're overwhelmed. I think I made the decision to divorce after four months of counseling when it was clear that our differences were not reconcilable, but I wanted to continue my own personal sessions. Mm. So at some point, I realized that even despite falling apart, there was actually an opportunity to rebuild. So for the first time, I realized that I'm an adult now. I'm not a child. So how I dealt as a child was to cope and to hide and to hide who I am out of escape and hide who I am out of shame but worse, actually out of fear. So you're constantly living in fear that 
still something that's going to happen to you or one day people are going to find out who you are and they aren't going to like you anymore. But as an adult, this was something I learned in therapy as well. I could actually rewrite my narrative. I could actually say that this whole chapter ending is a new opportunity to be honest about who I am and, and what I need and how I need to be and go through life and to actually rethink how, how will I make decisions differently based on them? What's the kind of support I need from my, my community, my friends, people around me? What's the kind of work environment that I need? So I started to, started to see it as an opportunity for, for growth and rediscovering who I am, but rediscovering not only the good parts of myself, but finally rediscovering as an adult all the, even the, the parts of myself I was embarrassed about or the parts of myself that I thought were, were weak. On the topic of growth, you speak about rebuilding yourself and, and rewriting your narrative. And I think this ties in very aptly to post-traumatic growth, where we are reading a HBR article and they describe post-traumatic growth as negative experiences can spur positive change, including a recognition of personal strength, the exploration of new possibilities, improved relationships, a greater appreciation for life, and possibly even spiritual growth. And tying to how this growth has really accelerated you in your discovery and your search for yourself. It also reminds me of this Mark Manson quote that I read a couple of days ago, where he says that all growth requires some sort of loss. And it's a loss of your old values, your own behaviors, your old loves, your old identity. And you spoke so much about that. And therefore, growth indeed has a component of grief to it. Yeah, I love that. I love that quote. That's such a great quote. Gosh, the amount of things that I thought I would lose when I made that decision. Honestly, the only reason I had the guts, the only reason I had the guts to say I'm going to get a divorce is because the first time I actually felt truly supported was with my therapist. But also, it was because that was the only time I had fully, truly opened up about every single thing from childhood until adulthood up to that point no one single person in my life had ever heard that story a to z i think Mm -hmm. after that i probably told you sarah Mm -hmm. but really before that point no one no one had heard it Mm. and and my counselor had had sat and in so many sessions and listened to me tell my stories and and at what point he said crystal do you feel like you've been very often misunderstood in life and when he asked me that question, I just started crying. I just started crying because at that moment, I felt so seen. I felt so hurt. I was really fighting him. I thought that he was talking nonsense at the beginning. But by that point, we grew to a point where our relationship was one where I finally trusted him. And when he asked me that question, I felt so seen. I felt so hurt. I felt so validated. And it really reinforced my trust and my faith in that journey of going through therapy and that was when I started to open up to other close friends in my life as well and really tell them tell them all this backstory to me also my parents right because my parents just couldn't process this whole idea that I wanted to get a divorce and I said like look this it's not just marriage and it's not just our current problems but there's so much that has been going on before that and and I really started unpacking a lot of things for them but yeah I think I had the courage to get divorced because for the first time in my life, I felt like here was someone who fully supported me and believed in me and who I was as a person, even after hearing all my nonsense, right? So once I made that decision, there was so much that I was afraid of losing. 
Mm. I was even ready to be disowned by my parents. I was ready to lose both of my my friends coming from a church background where divorce is something so taboo. Yeah, I was willing to, I, I felt like, well, you know, what is there to lose? I already like, I've already done the worst thing, which is go to go to therapy and tell a, a complete stranger all my worst problems. There's nothing that can be much worse than that. <laughs> Mm. And it would be a travesty for you to continue living in a life that you knew you could not go on living if you wanted to appease society, appease your parents or some sort of, you know, societal expectation that we place on ourselves to fulfill. That would be such a waste. But touching on the point on what you mentioned about your parents and having opened up to your close friends, were there any case where you felt that Uh, your friends didn't know how to react because I'm coming from a position of like if a close friend of mine were to open up and and having not spoken to her for a while have just hearing the news what would be the best way to support someone who has gone through that milestone huge life event and what should they not say I would say just acknowledge the elephant in the room like Mm. It is what it is, right? If someone has been through a divorce or if someone has gone through a really traumatic experience, I think just acknowledging it for what it is. I think being in an Asian culture, people probably wanted to be sensitive to my feelings and not ask me about something that maybe I'm not ready to talk about, which is great. I think we should definitely do that. But I think sometimes there's an oversensitivity that we just avoid anything that's remotely taboo. And and the thing is like, you know, I know, but nobody wants mm-hmm. to say it. So I think just just saying it like, you know, hey, I heard this shitty thing happened. That sounds really shitty. Do you want to talk about it? And just sometimes just saying that the elephant is in the room makes me at least realize that, oh, okay, this person is cool talking about it. And then we can have a conversation about that. But it's such a big topic that I never want to bring it up to somebody unless they bring it up first because I feel like not everyone might be emotionally in the right headspace to to want to to hear this heavy story in your journey of counseling being able to open up with your friends with your support circle is also considered like a milestone in the whole therapy journey but apart from that what would you say is the biggest mental reframe that you have made since starting counseling you touched a bit about changing your narrative redefining that narrative but besides that were there any other major mental mental reframes that you have done i think it's a combination of both like big reframes right and uh, one of the big reframes was that that I'm, I'm enough, you know, as I am. Even though the world seems to want to reward me for, for being this strong, capable, responsible woman, I'm also enough when I'm an emotional, melancholic, sensitive person. And, and I think one of the, thing, the lines that stuck with me is we often feel like we have to be more, mm. like we're not enough, we have to be more. But actually what we need to do is be more, mm. like be who we are more often, be okay with who we are, be okay with sitting with ourselves, with our personalities, with our emotions, not just the good, but also the bad. And just feel like, how does it feel like to be Sarah? How does it feel like to be Janice? Because we're so often trying to be who we think other people think we should be. Mm. And, and we don't really give ourselves often the space to just be who we are, including the parts of us that other people don't see. That, that was a big mental reframe, but I think the smaller mini-micro mini ones is also that counselling gave me a toolkit of things that I could do instead of my previous 
unhealthy coping mechanisms, which is like codependency and sex, to actually have other tools at my disposal. So one of it is journaling. And yeah, a lot of people talk about journaling, but specifically with my counsellor, I said, yeah, you know, I've been journaling all my life. It, it hasn't stopped me from having all these problems. And he said, no, I want you to be really brutally honest when you write down what you're feeling. Mm. Even if all you can process is, I feel like shit today, write it down. And he says, he said to me, even if you don't want to write it in a journal, just write it on a post-it note and then crumple it and throw it away. But you have to process everything because what you don't process, you will stuff it in and it's going to leak out in some other part of your life. And you wonder like, why do people explode? Why do some people explode, right? You see, mm. we've been seeing during COVID the levels of stress and people doing crazy stuff like being horrible to grab driver, just being really nasty. And you wonder like, why do people explode like that? And, and, and I think that's what my counselor was getting at. When you stuff things in, it's going to explode somehow. So just process it, even if it's writing on a post-it note and then throwing it away. That was one tool. And another tool was also like breathing, breathing, meditation, learning to I think that's very tied to learning to be with yourself because when you do like even a simple breathing exercise, just breathing for 10 breaths, it helps you check in and think about how you're feeling right now, even if you're having a lousy day. Another tool was uh, picturing the worst case scenario because often we fear the unknown, but when you allow yourself to picture the worst thing that can happen, often you realize it's not really that bad. So yeah, there's this whole bunch of like mini tools as well as the big mental reframes that I think were really transformative for me. And in fact, I'm still using a lot of these even just to deal with this pandemic. One of the things I recently discovered was the idea of having self-care wellness kit. And it's the idea that you have this basket of things that you know make you feel good. It could be, for me, well, it's a coloring book, it's a candle, like my favorite tea, some paintbrushes, it could be a bar of chocolate, it could be some headphones, headset with some nice music, but basically things that make you feel good. It's just the, the idea of having something within reach when you really are having a lousy day. Because even to the best of us, it happens, right? There are moments in our days we just get overwhelmed. Some little thing pushes over us over the edge it could be a colleague's remark or an email or an sms or something our partner said that was just not in a tone that sounded nice to us mm. and and we just lose our shit right <laughs> so i think like the basket is like acknowledging that th these moments happen it's part of being human so you know instead of needing to go down a spiral of what did i do wrong or self-doubt or self-hating you can actually just say, hey, I'm feeling really shit. Let me grab something that makes me feel a, a little bit better. Yeah, I love that. And I think I'm going to try doing that as well. Exactly. <laughs> I told Crystal the same thing. So I need to have that basket within reach. <laughs> exactly. And, exactly. And actually something you mentioned earlier about one of the coping mechanisms that your counsellor recommended, which was processing how you feel and kind of being able to see it on paper. I think in a way that's really therapeutic. And the analogy I have, it's like you take out the trash every single day. Yes. You don't yeah. let rubbish clutter up in your house. So don't let you know, your emotions clutter up your mind or clutter up your heart. That's the exact analogy that my therapist gave me. He said that same thing about taking out the trash or even some people would say like taking a shower. It doesn't mean you're a dirty person if you need to take a shower every day. That's just part of life. So so I think recognizing that the ebb and flow of life, the fact that we have 
good emotions, bad emotions, high moments, low moments. I think we need to recognize that's part of life and, and there's nothing wrong in getting help for dealing with the lower moments or or needing time to process or needing tools or, or help to, to manage the shitty moments. <laughs> I think it just sums up so nicely about how we have shared humanity because our lives are not just the highs and the mountain peaks, right? It's really those lows and those deep valleys as well that we go through. Coming back to the topic of therapy, Crystal, you talked briefly about this, but I was hoping you can dive a little bit more into what are some myths that you would love to help bust about therapy? The word therapy and counselling is used very interchangeably. Like even when I started going for psychotherapy is the official term, I was like, what's the difference, right? It's all it's all counselling, marriage counselling, divorce counselling, and now this individual counselling I'm going through. But I think counselling is more general, right? And it's, you know, you can have a career counsellor, you can have a youth counsellor. It's like anybody can counsel you. But psychotherapy is very specific because there's a very structured process to it. The process that there's a few, but the process that I did was called cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses on changing your beliefs, unhelpful patterns of beliefs and thoughts um, and emotions in a way that changes your behavior. So there's a negative behavior that you want to stop, right? And, and you're focusing on what's the underlying beliefs and thoughts and emotions associated with that and how do you reframe it to something more positive. It's a very st- structured approach and only trained psychologists can, can offer this kind of approach. Whereas I think, yeah, counseling is more general. So there's a lot of lay people who don't necessarily have a psychological background that that offer counseling. And I think if what you're going through is very deep-seated, it can be hard for a lay counselor to to necessarily be able to, to give you the tools to deal with it without the proper training. And I think a lot of people are also afraid of like the, the cost. There's a, fra- a bunch of things like when I tell people about my, my therapy journey, a lot of people are afraid of one, telling a complete stranger all your problems because they're afraid of like confidentiality. Another thing is like the cost that go to a trained psychologist, there's usually some kind of cost associated with it. So, so whereas counseling, there's a lot of free options out there. And I think counseling is really helpful if you need to vent, right? You just need a listening ear, empathetic ear, a safe space. But it's not always the right solution if you have a very specific issue or a challenge that you need to actually work through many, many rounds and many, many layers to get to the bottom of. So I think the myth that people have is that it's scary or it doesn't help me because they're, they're not using the right tool for the right thing, right? They're, they're trying to, they maybe went to a counsellor and then they felt like after one session, it didn't help me when maybe what they need is a more structured therapy approach. And, and they need to give it more time instead of just one session to see results. So yeah, I would say those are the common myths that it's scary, that it doesn't bring results. And to address that, I would say it's a process and also you need the right, the right process for the right situation. Mm. Yeah. And the right expertise as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was it hard for you to identify the right one? Uh, because in a previous episode that we had with an, another guest, you know, with Heidi, she was mentioning that yeah. how finding a right therapist is like finding the right partner. So did you did you meet the one from the beginning or did you take a few like trials and errors? Oh, I think my lucky stars must have been 
shining on me and thinking like I've been through enough by that point. But it was it it was it was the the only one I went to. I, I think, thank God, because I really would not have gone to another person. I just did not have any faith in it. Okay, I had like I was the biggest skeptic. I was like, oh, I'm in control, you know, like and like I said initially, it was supposed to be divorce counseling, and then after a while, we're like, okay, we're going our separate ways. But I realized there's still my personal issues I need to work through. And by that point, I had built trust. But I think it was because in the beginning, he really held space for me to challenge him and question him, and even like fight with him. I had full blown arguments with him because I didn't agree with his assessment of my situation. That was how much like I was not aware, and I was like in denial, almost like just doing a lot of blind spots that I had. So I was really just arguing with him because I disagree with him, and I had so many defenses and walls up. And I think he just held space for that. He just let me question and like, you know, like he let me argue back with him, and he was he just kept being so patient and holding so much space for me that after a few months, I really just trusted him. Completely, mm. yeah. Well, Crystal, I'm so happy to hear that you hit jackpot on you know on the first try because that doesn't happen for everyone. So, yeah, but I, I must say that there was a fee associated to it. I I know that not everyone has access to the same resources, and there's also organizations that that offer resources for people who are maybe you know, don't have the financial means to pay for their own private therapy sessions. But for people who do. I would say it's like any other investment you make into yourself. So you you're not going to be like cheap on all your other investments. So it's something that you should also invest in. It's an investment, right? So so yeah, that's a factor as well. What is one thing you wish someone told you, or something that you wish you heard when you were initially still considering if you should or should not seek? Professional help, and hopefully this is something that would help someone that's also considering it. Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> you know, it's like when oh gosh, I don't know if I can answer that question without sounding cliche. <laughs> I think it's like with any other thing that if you really, really believe in it, you just tell everyone about it, right? And you just say you you have to try it. Like, just try it, and what you experience will speak for itself. You know, I'm not. I can't tell like. What your journey will be, but I can say for me, it's been completely, completely transformative. It changed like every single thing about the way I see myself, the way I see life, the way I see people. I would say I used to be a very mistrustful person because I was fearful and I was hiding from people finding out my true self. I I would say I'm so much more hopeful as a person. Of course, I have bad days, and of course, like there are times I have conflict with others. But I think I just genuinely. I'm able to see the silver lining in everything. I genuinely am able to trust people and open up to people, and not always feel like I'm going to get stabbed in the back or waiting for the other shoe to drop, and not always like just wait, seeing like thinking what's going to pounce out at me from around the corner. I feel like there's just so much more ease and lightness. It's not like I'm I'm on cloud nine every day, but I would say overall, there's just more peace and. Lightness and and joy and like, I'm not in that place I was a few years ago where I'm like, what is the meaning of life? If this is life, I don't even want to live. You know, now I'm just like, yeah, you know, like whatever comes comes, bring it on. We can't avoid the pain. We can lean into it, and and we can recognize that 
together with the pain, there is also the opportunity to grow into something new, something potentially better. And I think it's that attitude that we carry that keeps us focused on what we can do ourselves and how we can use the situation as an opportunity for growth instead of just being overwhelmed by despair. We like to ask all our guests at the end of the episode, what is one thing you've recently explored that surprised you? Oh, wow. One thing I recently explored that surprised me. Hmm, that's a really good question. I think, oh, this is hard because it feels like my life has just been a repetitive loop in COVID. But I think one thing maybe I've done differently a little bit is being a bit more strict with work boundaries feeling a little bit less guilty when i put things or push things to the next day or or, or say no to to colleagues or just say I, I i i can do this but not right now later with that said it's like not being it's not about being irresponsible right it's not about shirking work but i think just understanding priorities and also understanding that in pandemic times work is never going to end so yes do the important and urgent things but then don't feel bad about switching off at the end of the day because we're just back to back on on our screens and and also yeah so so tied to that okay there is something you have been doing not feeling guilty about taking mental health and well-being breaks in the middle of a working day so in the office you can't do a five-minute meditation right maybe you can maybe your colleagues will stare at you right if you start sitting cross-legged in your chair and close your eyes for five minutes but i've been starting to take those five-minute meditation breaks in the middle of the day and also sometimes even taking a longer 10-minute break to do like a mask in the middle of the day or light a candle all these things you can't do in the office and not feeling guilty about that because we're under unusual stress and most of us have been working longer than usual hours. So I think un- unusual coping methods are, are not wrong as well. Five or ten minutes in the middle of the day doesn't hurt. Um, so yeah. Love it, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing. I think the underlying theme behind today's entire episode has really just been about learning and that growth element and recognizing that growth is something that cannot be forced or rushed. You spoke a lot about how therapy was a process that you had to go through. So hopefully for those listening out there, this is the nudging that you need or that little kind reminder that hopefully we don't have to hit rock bottom before realizing that we need to rebuild our entire lives from the ground up. And so thank you, Crystal, for being so vulnerable and open with your personal journey and growth through this very stressful traumatic period you went through and so on that note do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with i think just one short thing i'd like to leave people with is we've spent so much of this whole hour talking about mental health and like from a very logical objective point of view but i would say we talked about languishing at the end of this session right and I would say it's very much a spiritual journey as well. Facing the darkness that's inside us, facing our pain, I think there's a very spiritual dimension to it as well. And two quotes actually that really kept me going and still keeps me going is this quote by Leonard Cohen. He's the songwriter. And he said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's also a similar quote by the poet Rumi, the wound is where the light enters you. So I think when we think about facing the darkest parts of ourselves or facing the darkest situations out there in the world, and and we talk about how do we find anything good out of it, I think that whole 
process of transforming bad situations into growth of almost like alchemy and transmuting something bad into something positive. I think that whole journey, there's a spiritual quality to it as well. And and there must be that willingness to go on that journey as well. Thank you for summarizing the episode on such a beautiful and profound note. We really, really enjoyed chatting with you and, you know, appreciate how real you got and how candid and authentic you were. So thank you so much for that, Crystal. And Thank you so much for giving me this space to share as well. It's our pleasure. So to recap this episode, today we spoke to Crystal about finding acceptance after falling apart. We discussed how challenging life experiences that we encounter are the new soil for growth and how we can reframe our mindsets about seeking therapy by identifying our suite of coping strategies and having a mental toolkit for when crisis strikes. Thank you so much, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed this episode today. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! 